this is what your kids can aspire uh, to be one day because we've got the infrastructure. You know, so that that with having MotoGP, it totally changes their perception that this is no longer a dream. By 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 all means, Formula One is still a dream for a lot of people. You know, but for MotoGP, this is no longer a dream. This is achievable. You work hard, you know, be disciplined, focus. You you can one day ride on these machines. Hello and welcome to Last on the Breaks, the MotoGP podcast with me, From Wild, joined as ever by Matt Dunn. And this week, as you just heard at the top of the show, we'll be talking to Patronus Sepang Racing Team boss, Razlan Razali. There he was talking about how you can make MotoGP an achievable dream for kids in Malaysia. But, well, Matt, hello, how are you? I noticed you've put in your notes to ask you that. So, uh, how are you? And what are we talking to Razlan about today? I'm very well, thank you, Fran. No, I just thought we'd get a little <laughs> bit more chatty these days. But, um, yeah, you know, today we're talking about mainly how to build a GP team from scratch and what the real meaning is and what it actually means to be in the right place at the right time because I think there's a truly fascinating story behind that one with Razlan. We want to also know why GP is so popular in Southeast Asia and how... You can make a national sporting hero, which some pretty deep topics, but I actually I think there's not really a better man to ask about it than Razlan himself. But quick disclaimer, if you're coming here to find out what Valentino Rossi's plans are for 2021, well, this is not the podcast for you. But whilst it's not a topic of conversation that we delve into at length, if you wait for the Kenwood quickfire right at the end, Razlan does give something away, which gives you a very good indication of what kind of news we could be receiving very soon. I'll leave the rest up to you guys. But before we get going, Fran, a little bit more context on Razlan because, of course, he does give his backstory uh, in in the podcast. We do that is very important to understand where he's come from uh, and his background. But just before we get going, Sepang Racing Team boss, but also- exactly. Before we dive in, then, um, yeah, you'll find out much more on the detail of how Razlan rose to be the king of such a MotoGP empire, <laughs> um, but. So before he was just the team principal of the Petronas Sepang Racing Team, as he is now, earlier in the year, he left his position as also CEO of Sepang International Circuit, obviously the track just outside Kuala Lumpur. Uh, And he's been there since 2008. I think he says it was like two weeks before the Malaysian Grand Prix in 2008 that he jumped into there. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, I think it's... uh, it's a pretty interesting person to talk to, most definitely. Um, so, yeah, all about how he got that job and how then now the enormous popularity of the sport has been grown both from the circuit's efforts and the teams and everything else. I think it's good. Yeah, but before we do, uh, question of the week for you guys. A little bit more deeper this week than I guess we're normally used to because towards the end we talk a lot about winning and the accolades that come from it and how the, the attitudes are changing between riders of certain ages. Uh, so our question for you guys out there is, is your motivation for success the accolades that come with that or 
are they the achievements themselves? Well, big deeper question, but I think it's quite valid given the topics. Leave your answers on Twitter using the hashtag MotoGP Podcast or in the comments below if you're watching on YouTube. Let us know. Uh, and before we get going, if you like the podcast, because you know there have been quite a few more listeners in recent weeks, leave us a review, will you, in a, in a five-star rating or four-star, you know, just, you know, be nice. Um, and also recommend it to a friend. That would be greatly appreciated. So without further ado, I guess we should get going chatting to Razlan. Let's go. Um, so Razlan, welcome. Uh, nice of you to join us from your man cave with your hundred and million bikes in the background there. <laughs> um, firstly, just want to ask, how are you and how's the situation there in, in Malaysia with all that's been going on? Well, I'm fine. The family's fine. Um, I think uh, uh, there's some positive in being in a lockdown per se for the last uh, two months. Uh, but at the same time, I think it's a tad too long. Um <laughs> I know we are all practicing uh, social distancing, but I think uh, the next phase would be wife and husband distancing. I think (laughs) 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 it will be healthy for everybody. But other than that, yeah, we're all good here. The situation in Malaysia is getting better by the day. Uh, Everything is a bit more relaxed, a bit more uh, eased in terms of restrictions. Uh, Of course, the government is... Uh, promoting again social distancing, hygiene, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But everything seems to be great. Um, so we look forward to go racing next month. But uh, we know it's going to be a big um, uh, obstacle to go past with all the travel restrictions, testing, and all that. But still, you know, we we, we can't wait to go racing. Yeah, I think everyone feels like that now, don't they? And like you said, it's it's quite an interesting experience getting locked in with your nearest and dearest as much as we love them. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, so we obviously want to talk to you about sort of Malaysia and the incredible successes that you're starting to see, talent promotion, everything that you've been so instrumental in building. But we also want to get to know you a little better. So we thought we'd ask, you became CEO of Sepang, which is what you recently left to take over in the team full time in 2008, right? Yes. How, how did life kind of lead you there? Was it from sport or was it from sort of managerial side? I think it's a combination of everything. I was appointed in 2008, which is exactly two weeks before the Malaysian Grand Prix. And my first wow. uh, <laughs> my first press conference, I can recall, was in, at Sepang Circuit talking about Malaysian Grand Prix. And uh, the media was asking me about my commitment to Malaysian talent. And on the spot, I made a commitment that in 2009, we will put a wild card in the Malaysian Grand Prix, and, and we did it. Uh, but just to backtrack a little bit, um, I'm an accountant in terms of uh, background, in terms of my studies. Um, I've gone through quite a number of industries from construction to IT to event management. Um, I think event management is something that in some ways got me to where I was in Sepang Circuit because I was, uh, I provided uh, artists for the Formula One Malaysian Grand Prix, uh, all the A-list artists, uh, and at the same time, I promoted uh, international concerts. So we brought in huge acts to Malaysia. And my interest in motorsports, uh, I used to race uh, both bikes and cars. Um, 
I go to Sepang a lot. Uh, Sepang is like my second home uh, <laughs> then. Um, and uh, I heard about the vacancy as a general manager then. And I applied for it. And it took two years for them to confirm me. <laughs> two years? <laughs> oh, what was that? Two years. I, I mean, at that time, uh, Sepang Circuit was owned by Malaysia Airports, you know, Kuala Lumpur International Airport. Okay. Um, so it's it, And they went through some restructuring. So the, the focus is not at Sepang Circuit. But finally, um, it took two years from my interview with the chairman and the managing director of the airport, two years before they finally appointed me. And uh, yeah, so I think a combination of my background, my experience in event management, and of course my passion to uh, motorsports got me to where I was in, in Sepang. So can you tell us a little bit more about that passion for motorsports? Because that's a very illustrious sort of business background in all sorts of aspects. To then go so left field to motorsport is, is quite, quite a change, is it not? Or were you just completely <laughs> prepared for it and it was quite seamless getting into that? You know what? Every every male species has a motorsport DNA in them. Either they are, they, hey, either they are, some of us do yeah, too. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. But, um, but majority are in men anyway. So uh, um, so sometimes it is out there uh, uh, glaring, or sometimes it takes a little bit of push to get the DNA out. Um, I'm a late boomer actually when it comes to motorsport. I think primarily because my parents were against it. Uh, you know, they were very protective of uh, uh, me and my brother, my sister, even riding bicycles and, and, and all that. So we had to sneak out and, and ride our, our friends' bikes. Or uh, only when I was in Australia studying, I, I learned how to ride a bike in a farm and all that, drive a car in a farm, a friend's farm. And only until I got married, when I was independent, I bought my own bike. Huh. And from one bike, become 10 bikes. And that's when I got into into racing. So that's where, you know, the passion for motorsports for me surfaces. Um, and, and we went to Batu Tiga, Shalam before, uh, when it was the first track then. And then, of course, Sepang came in uh, in 1998. Yeah. Um, yeah. And Formula One came and, of course, MotoGP and it all spiraled from, from there. That's pretty, I like that. It's kind of like you get so often when it's like, well, then I left home and I could just do what I want. And finally it's like, yeah, this is what I like. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, but, but the, the thing is I had to get married to do to be able to do all this. <laughs> this this, this is a little stops. extra pressure. <laughs> yeah, usually, that's correct. <laughs> no, that's right. So, so you said at the time then that Sepang was owned by the airport. Um, but since it's become kind of its own centre of kind of cultural stuff, obviously based around motorsport, um, with a lot of kind of not influence isn't the right word, but it's a very important place now for Malaysian motorsport. It's really grown into it. Do you think that it's helped with like your involvement and the government backing to really take it to be such a central thing now? Well. Um... In 2009, uh, we evolved into a, a subsidiary that's owned by the airport to a subsidiary that's owned by the Ministry of Finance. So in 2009, we basically owned by the government. Um, it's very unusual for a government to own assets like uh, Sepang Circuit, a, a racing facility. 
Um, yeah, it's guess, in Europe especially, it's, no, yes, exactly. it's all like private people doing the, the counting in the background. <laughs> yeah. so, so it's very unusual. And we became non-strategic asset for the country. But we were the number, the top three recipient of government grant. Okay. Purely because of the rights fees that we pay Formula One and MotoGP. So we are non-strategic asset, but we are recipient, a top three recipient uh, of government grant because of the events. Um, so in that sense, uh, uh, SIC is iconic for Malaysia because of the events, uh, but Sepang Circuit was less so. So we had to bring the image up of Sepang Circuit uh, to a higher level uh, so that it's on par to, nearly on par to what Formula One as a brand and and uh, MotoGP as well. Uh, so we had to do a lot of redevelopment, uh, rehabilitation of the track and change a lot of things uh, to make, to make uh, uh, Sepang Circuit more commercial. You know, uh, before... It was uh, okay. It was not managed properly. Uh, it's a free for all. Everybody can use the track as and when they like, and uh, there's no emphasis of sustainability, you know, uh, um, except for during Formula One and MotoGP. So what happens in between is important. So what we have done that for the last uh, 11 years, we uh, positioned Sepang Circuit as a multifaceted venue, not only for motorsport but other non-motorsports events as well. Uh, self-sustainable, uh, uh, added a lot of new facilities. As you have seen in the last uh, uh, five, six years, new pedal, new soft pedal, new facilities, and etc., etc. So it's something. So then, as I see, became a real symbol of Asian motorsports. Uh, uh, you know, we're proud. We're proud to have Sepang uh, Circuit uh, as uh, uh, an icon. Uh, not only from F1 and MotoGP, but as a facility uh, as well. That's really cool. The the images of of that you get from Sepang, it's sort of unmistakable with the grandstand. You know the the sort of yes. the coverings that you have there, and then the palm trees, riders racing around that. Uh, so that's that's the the back context of of Sepang Circuit and how that's come to sort of the forefront of motorsport in in Asia, as you say. But um, so the the main, main one of the main topics we really wanted to discuss with you is the rise of popularity in conjunction with that. Uh, of motorcycle racing in Southeast Asia because I'm sure everybody listening whether they just listen to the podcast and don't consume much social media from MotoGP there's no mistaking if you look through the comments sections on all uh, social media platforms it's full of Malaysian uh, comments Indonesian as well I know there's some subtle differences in the language yeah. Thai even yeah. in Indian as well like most of the questions I get on Instagram live are actually a lot of Indian guys so what we're really fascinated to discuss with you, uh, what we're interested in talking about is is the popularity of of motorsport and two-wheeled motorsport in that region. Did that sort of arise in conjunction with the same timeline as Sepang becoming a real icon of motorsport? Or did it come before that and Sepang then rose to it? What's, what's your take on it? Well, I, I think it's, number one, we did not fully leverage on MotoGP. Uh, for those who have been to uh, uh, Malaysian Grand Prix since the Shalam days, I think in 1991, I think, uh, uh, I, I know there's quite a number of guys from 91 and they come to Sepang every year since. 
So they saw the transformation. Mm. And I can remember in 2008, uh, uh, Yuppie came to see me uh, when when you guys came to uh, Sepang. And, and he said, look, we love coming to Malaysia. It's an important market for us. Uh, we come here, we set up, we raise and we leave. But you're not giving us work to do. You know, those are magic words uh, for my ears, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, for him to open up, for Dorna to open up. I mean, come on, man, give us something to do. Let's let's do this. And, and, and from that moment on, we did not turn back. You know, from 2009 onwards, 2008-9 until now, MotoGP have grown tremendously. And that's because the the market is always there because Asian countries, in terms of two wheels, the the biggest number of uh, uh, users of two wheels is, is in Asia, Malaysia, Thailand, Vietnam, India, or, or, or China to to, to to some respect. Um, so we basically just complement them and really took advantage. And and with MotoGP, we just have to massage it and make it look great, you know. Uh, uh, and most importantly, it's been in Malaysia for so long. It doesn't take a, a nuclear scientist to figure it out. Just create national heroes, you know. So that's what we did. You know, uh, you have a huge event like MotoGP, and what Malaysians wants to see is our own Malaysians competing, whether it's wildcard or, or or full season uh, uh, riders and all. That's all it took, and and we did that in two thousand nine. As I said earlier, we, are, we I committed to one World Cup, but instead we had two, okay, with Zulfami. And then in 2010, from then onwards until now, we constantly have Malaysians in on the grid. And that helps uh, uh, Malaysian market. It also pushes other countries like Thailand to put in their riders. And Thailand came up. You know, in, in the beginning, we were the front runners for Asian, uh, Southeast Asian countries to put uh, to put. Um, riders in the world championship. Now you see Thailand is doing quite aggressively. You have Indonesia as well. Of course, the Japanese felt insecure, so they put more Japanese kids <laughs> in there. So, which is which is great, you know. So, I think, uh, um, yeah, we we developed something uh, uh, fantastic for the region. But we can do all that. But the most important thing, I believe, is MotoGP. MotoGP Dona have not changed anything so drastic to the sport, unlike the sister or the brother of four wheels. You know, <laughs> uh, I will I will not go there. You know, but, but, but MotoGP have not really changed. It has been exciting from the longest of time that I've been supporting MotoGP. I was a big fan of Formula One. But over the years, it just gets too boring. It just gets too sophisticated, inaccessible, and it's it's purely boring. It's not exciting anymore. But MotoGP remains as such. It's exciting. It's great. It has three classes. And we just piggyback on MotoGP, build it up for Malaysia, and the, the result is Southeast Asian is just huge when it comes to MotoGP. That's it. That's, Simple, that's I, I believe. <laughs> I, I always it always interests me because you see like in the uk f1 is definitely a bigger sport than MotoGP. Uh, no one get offended that's just the numbers and the stats it's a reality we have to deal with um but um and it's kind of like there's not that much culture of motorcycling outside of the people who are bikers 
is kind of still a countercultural thing. And then in Spain and Italy and the places where it's really big, you see so many people who use a bike every day just to go to work, not because they want to own a bike. And that seems quite similar in a lot of Asian countries. Whereas F1, though, it's interesting because there's so much less in common between a Formula One car and a Mm -hmm. road car. It's like, it's just not the same at all. Like, imagine just lying back in your road car. It's just, you know, you're never going to feel like Mark Marquez (laughs) when you go around the corner, are you? So, uh, but yeah, that's that's interesting then that it's more just Ah, complementing that and building it up. But when you say that, I mean, you look at MotoGP and World Superbike, you know, people can relate with World Superbike because the machine that's used is as close as the road bike, where the GP bike is still prototype. But why is it that MotoGP is so much popular than World Superbike? Yeah, yeah, that's, a, yeah, that's, that's another interesting topic. This is yeah. true. So, something you know? I, I wanted to just quickly ask you about before we we move on too much. You, you mentioned there about Malaysians wanting a national hero, and it made me think about when we talk about the situation of motorcycle racing as a sport in in the US. And lots of if you ask lots of people over there about how to make MotoGP more popular there, they say you need a hero. That's it. But MotoGP is so unbelievably popular already in, in these Southeast Asian countries without having, okay, you've had Hafisha at the top of the sport for the last couple of years and you've got your team now. But before that, it was still just as popular. What is the difference there, do you think, in the attitude towards that sport? Why it's so popular regardless of a hero in the first place anyways? Well, um, you, you're right. I mean, we, before Hafiz, Zolfani and the likes of Karui Rampawi, we had uh, a couple of wildcards in Chalam days. Uh, um, we had Sharul Yuzi was the last uh, um, full-time rider uh, with the Petronas team then. Um, I think before there was no real focus to promote Malaysian Grand Prix. Uh, I think in Sepang Circuit then, uh, prior to my arrival, the focus was just Formula One. You know, Formula One is seemed to be the more the more glamorous, the more money making or opportunity, whatever that is with Formula One. Where MotoGP is like a step brother or stepchild of the event that we are just hosting it. You know. Uh, so when I came in, the mandate that was given to me is that we need to uh, uh, equalize both events. You know, we can't we can't just focus on Formula One and not do anything with MotoGP. We must. So if F1 is up there, so I have to bring up MotoGP to the same level of interest and re- reception to the Malaysian masses as a priority. Uh, what we've discovered is that you know MotoGP Malaysia became a monster. <laughs> and, and Formula One took a real back seat, came to the point where did we decide, shit, Formula One is not feasible anymore, and we had to give it up. And now the Blue Ribbon event is MotoGP. It is the longest international event in Malaysia since 1991. It now becomes the biggest international event in Malaysia and probably in Southeast Asia now with the uh, Buriram Grand Prix. It's huge. Okay, that makes me feel a little bit better if it's the biggest international event because me and Matt had a very interesting experience at Sepang last year. Was it last year? We we had a flat tyre and that delayed us leaving the hotel. (laughs) And then we got stuck in the like 
<laughs> excuse me, there's a 10 kilometer almost detour. If you oh, miss no. when the road straight to the circuit is open and we... You have to go to the second know, terminal think... at the airport, don't you? Because you go... Yeah, yeah. We, and so we all leave the way from, back around. Yeah, that we leave from the hotel and you normally just get to a roundabout and you take the third exit going round yeah. and then you're on the road down to the circuit. No problem. It's about four kilometres, I remember looking at the map. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> at that time in the morning, because we were so... We thought we could leave... Because uh, it's later on, wasn't it? Because of... Ah, because of the rain that was scheduled. That's why it was uh, later that was on. two years ago. Um, yeah. yeah. Oh, maybe it was two years yes, ago it then. was two years ago, yeah. So... Um, yeah, so we left a little. We were left a little bit later anyway, so it wasn't by much. It would have been fine, but our car had a flat tire, so we got it changed. And then, yeah, by the time we got round, they closed off the roundabout. Said you have to go all the way to the second terminal, so as Fran said, ten kilometer detour. And uh, but just in case, <laughs> your any, don't work? It, it, no, no, it did not. We, <laughs> no, we, for the it sake didn't. of the Malaysian authorities, you probably can't say how we managed to get to the circuit on time again. But I made it. We made it just enough time that I could get on the grid. For Moto three to take the images for social media. That's how long it took us to get there, and it was, oh my goodness! Yeah, I mean, was... I was, you sweat a lot in Malaysia, but that was I was dripping. <laughs> so yeah, um, we, so we, that, we, yeah. as your your point, Fran. Sorry, then like the the it was insane. I've never seen a traffic jam like it to get in. It's we we gauge the success. We gauge the success of uh, any international event based on the traffic jam. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you then, know, it genuinely is the biggest international event in Malaysia, then. <laughs> that uh, was it's, crazy. It's crazy. I totally it, forgot it's something about that we were, It's something that we were asked to improve every year, but it's just impossible when you have 100,000 coming in. Yeah, uh, no, exactly. I, I, it always makes me laugh when people complain about this. Sometimes things go wrong and, like, we had an extra thing and then got stuck. But some people just expect to get out of their seat and then go home. And it's like, guys... There's like a 99,999 people who all want to do the same thing. It's going exactly. to take some time. And it's only <laughs> right, one okay, so Exactly. Yeah, come on, put in the time. But um, Right, okay, we'll, we'll move away from Sepang the circuit then. Obviously now, Sepang Racing Team is your uh, dominion. And it's kind of incredible watching it grow because now you have obviously talent promotion then you have teams in the cv you have moto 3 moto 2 moto gp the only thing that was kind of comparable was ktm once they joined moto gp um but now obviously in moto 2 there's no chassis per se so you have this incredible unique structure now where how did that come from you said you started with the idea for a wild card with farmy and then did a couple of those was it like this master plan? Did you see this in your head when you started, or is it just kind of how it's evolved? In my dreams, yeah. <laughs> Did you dare um, to tell anyone about those dreams, though? <laughs> no, well, the, the 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 again, the ambition and more more of a dream is to 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 one day have a MotoGP uh, uh, team, of course. Um, um, but for most people, it's it's just a dream. Um, our intention is to to start from Moto three to develop program to begin with Moto three. You know, so we went to CV to the Asian Talent Cup and all that to start off Moto three and grow with our rider to go to Moto two, grow with them and then to go to uh, um, Moto GP. Uh, that was that was the plan, uh, uh, more more or less. 
Uh, but situation came to a point where where Hafiz Sharin, who was in a previous team in Moro Two, uh, so he had a fallout with the team. So we had to take over, uh, uh, take him over because he is an interest uh, for the for for Malaysia for Malaysian Grand Prix. So we had to take it over. So that fast track our Moto Two entry uh, for Hafiz. Um, and before he even spin the wheel on a Moto2 uh, uh, bike, we had an offer for uh, him to go into Tech 3 for a last-minute entry for MotoGP. So, so that is something that we never thought as well. For The plan was to put a Malaysian boy, which is Hafiz, in 2021. Okay, so that became fast-track even. Uh, and, and we compromised with our performance in Moto2 because we had Fami and then Fami didn't do too well. He retired and we had uh, uh, Truly, I think. Uh, so it, it, it didn't end up very good, but doesn't matter because the intention is to put Malaysian in the MotoGP uh, category. And we did that. And we thought, okay, we are happy with that, a Malaysian in MotoGP. And uh, one day... Uh, in Jerez, I think uh, we've had a rumor of uh, of a team that's in trouble in MotoGP, and uh, I was sitting down with uh, Johan Stigerfeld and said, "You know what? If this is true, let's let's convince Petronas to come in and set up a MotoGP team because that's what they want to do. Because they were going around uh, trying to sponsor teams, and 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 believe it or not, nobody wanted them because they already had an existing." Uh, uh, sponsors and whatnot, and the earliest that they could come in was in 2021. So I thought, okay. And while we were talking about that, I saw Carlos walking in front of me, and I quickly ran to him and told and told Carlos, Carlos, I heard about this thing. You know, is there a way that we could do something with us, with Petronas? You know, Tech Tree is going to KTM and blah blah blah. And he said, okay, let me discuss with Carmelo. And five minutes later, Carmelo called me and said, let's talk. <laughs> and we talk, and Carmelo is fully supportive, and that's it. You know, if I'm not mistaken, after the race in Jerez, I tra- I transited uh, somewhere, and Lynn Yarvis was on the same flight. Okay, <laughs> and, while walk- <laughs> and while we're walking towards our connection flight, I had a chat with him. Okay, and that also began the first discussion about setting up our own team. And that's it. It's just like being at the right place at the right time, seizing the opportunity, work hard to make sure it works, and and we did it. That's brilliant. I feel like... Less than four months, I think. (laughs) That's something that I feel like people forget because everyone's like, oh, you just got to be in the right place at the right time. But it's like, no, you've also got to do the right thing when that opportunity appears, right? It sounds like you just went, okay, right, let's go. And then a MotoGP team is born. Yeah, and I I think at that time, it's also important to to prove yourself because i think um besides at that time when we were in model three for a couple of years and model two and the relationship that we had with dorna with malaysian grand prix it give them that confidence that we are competent and able to do it you know that there, there are situations where you know some people have the luck of the world to to do what they want but Without the but without the track record, without the competency, the the, the professionalism is difficult for them uh, uh, to convince people. 
you know so so we are able to do that and and we follow the same philosophy for model 3 it's presentation comes first professionalism comes second and performance is last you know so 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 um, that that was the focus um, but of course again you know we set up this beautiful team and we got lucky again with fabio so <laughs> <laughs> something, something I want to ask you on that then, because I mean, I don't want to get into too much about about Fabio. Of course, we all know how how extraordinary yeah. he is, but I'm sure you've answered that sort of question a, a million times. But the thing that I've been thinking about hearing you hearing you talk about all that process is, it's all very well having the seamless transition all the way from the Junior World Championship all the way to MotoGP if there is a rider talented enough. But can you have you really grasped yet? Uh, from your own experience, how difficult it is for a rider. Can you can you do, talk to us a little bit about that? Because I suppose it, people might think, well, if you're in that team from the Junior World Championship, it's going to be easy. But it's not, right? So no, no. What, in your experience, can you tell us a little bit more about that, please? If we were to remain with just Moto3 and Moto2, then yes. You know, I mean, the, the, the transition from the Junior World Championship to Moto3 and Moto2, it's, it's there. But when, when, when you are entering to MotoGP, it's more of a business. You know, uh, uh, with Petronas coming in and invested a lot in us as a title partner, it became a business, it became a, a Performance is is one of the top three objectives. Of course, for Petronas, it's more of the commercial part, the branding and all that. And and it's important for us to have the right riders. It's not necessarily comes from from the ranks, but the focus is still there. Uh, our our philosophy is still try to develop riders from the Junior World Championship all the way up. It's not going to be easy. It will take a long, long time. Uh, uh, but because of MotoGP, because of it being a business and, and more prominent category, uh, we need to put the best riders that we feel uh, that can meet the objective of our title partner. Interesting. You know? So, so it's yeah, yeah. So it's not it's not like you you are in a junior champ- junior world championship and you have every right to 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 gr- gr- uh, um, promote yourself all the way to MotoGP. If you perform, yes. By all means, you know, if you were, if you're a champion in a junior world championship, you come into the Moto three, and within two years uh, you are a champion, and you go to Moto two, just like Mark Marquez, you know, uh, uh, then for sure. But but again, uh, if you look at Fabio as an example, he was nowhere really in uh, um, Moto two in 2018. You know, there are other riders that we could have chosen uh, because they are up there. You know, but we brought the guy in and he's just special and boom, he, he, he did it. You know, but can we find someone the same? We don't know. We just got lucky. You know, but uh, no, you, it's not a given right that if you are from the Junior World Championship, you have to, you have the right to go all the way up. You have to perform regardless. Okay, that's interesting as well, because I think I spoke to you a couple of years ago at the CEV as well about these kind of things one of the things i most remember from that is you were talking about how for you it's also important that riders feel like they are in a secure environment and it sounds like with what you were saying outside of MotoGP, obviously where you have more pressures from different parties that it's not just about you have to get this result this weekend or you need to go home 
it's much more about that kind of development and giving riders that support, which seems to be pretty successful because we see, I don't know, it seems quite a stressful time to be a young rider at the moment, trying to make yourself through and you have like two weekends to do it and prove you are Mark Marquez or you like, you know, <laughs> lose the opportunity. Yeah, well, not, not forgetting that, you know, we, we, are, we started our development program probably... 10 years or so, you know, compared to Red Bull Rookies, who's been around for so long. And before Red Bull Rookies, that Movistar, Talent Search and whatnot, you know, they've been around for such a, a much more longer uh, peer, uh, development uh, uh, time. And and the thing is, uh, of course, Europeans, uh, they are much more exposed when it comes to motorsport compared to yeah. Asia. And we always at a disadvantage because we, we the, the, the young ones started wrong in a different kind of bikes. Anyway, uh, we don't have as many tracks as in, in, in Europe, so it's always difficult. And the moment that we put them in a junior world championship, they're they already at a disadvantage. So it's always harder for them, but it's not impossible at the same time. So we try to provide them with the best support that we can uh, and that's the only thing that we can do because the rest is up to them. It's not us that is riding the bike; it's them, <laughs> you know. Um, so in the beginning, in the beginning, uh, yeah, we talk about uh, junior world championship or, or Asia Talent Cup for that matter to the junior world championship to Moto Three. Yes, okay, Moto Two, but now it's Moto GP. So, so what I did was uh, last year, if I'm not mistaken, when we launched the uh, Mini GPs Championship. For seven to ten years old, if I'm not mistaken, we did we did a demo uh, thing in and during the Malaysian Grand Prix mm, on a I Friday, it. I think. Adorable. Yeah. 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 <laughs> those tiny and, kids. And, <laughs> yes. And we took twenty of those kids from seven to ten years old and their parents. We took them to the MotoGP uh, 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 garage, and we said that this is the ultimate. Okay. This is what your kids can aspire uh, to be one day because we've got the infrastructure, you know. So that that with having MotoGP it totally changes their perception that this is no longer a dream. By 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 all means, Formula One is still a dream for a lot of people, you know. But for MotoGP, this is no longer a dream. This is achievable. You work hard. You know, be disciplined, focus. You you can one day ride on these machines, and to me, that's it. You know, that should be a great inspiration for them to work hard, and I hope so. Well, you know? well that, that's that, that's a really interesting story. I hope everybody listening like really took that all in because I think that's absolutely fascinating. You've got seven to ten year olds. You're taking them to a garage to be like, this is what you can can do. Um, but what what I want to ask you there then is is what did you see in those? Did did you get to see speak to enough to those kids and their families to understand sort of what the attitude is of these young kids starting out at that age? Because I suppose in Malaysia, despite how popular it is, there won't be as many kids racing around at that sort of age compared to how many you have in Spain and Italy. So what's, whereas in Spain and Italy, it's more normal per se. What's the sort of attitude of those kids? Are, are they seen as more special in that, in that sense, because they're going for this achievable dream? What's your take? The Malaysian kids, they are very lucky. Okay. And hence the reason why I approach or we start this new program between seven to ten year olds because they are they are pure in the sense of what they want to be when they grow up. 
Okay, they are not spoiled in the sense of the monetary rewards, the popularity and whatnot, uh, compared to the current kids between uh, 14 to 16, whereby the national championship in some way have influenced them more towards an ambition of money, fame, than, than the real objective of going to the world championship, you know. Uh, um, so I wanted I wanted kids that uh, are pure in that sense, whereby they want to be where Valentino Rossi is. They want to be Fabio Quartararo, you know. So the 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 burning desire is to be a champion, to be a MotoGP. Where they're not talking about money, they're not talking about rewards, they're not talking about sponsors, you know. So that's why the the the, the plan is to start when they're young, okay. To to identify the three or four guys that we feel have the potential, and to take them on board and develop them as much as we can when they're young, okay. Uh, 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 so that the the there's always that burning desire to win at all costs, to be focused, to be where they want to be in the world championship, and not worry about. How much you're gonna pay me? You know, uh, uh, once I get the money, I want to buy a BMW or, or this, that, <laughs> yeah. and that's the problem that we have right now. Is the motivation of the kids between 14 to 16, 17 year olds are all wrong? You know, they're that's much really more driven than the monetary uh, 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 materials than anything else. And and Malaysian kids are lucky because we provide the infrastructure for them from the mini GP. All the way to the junior world championship, and we have the infrastructure for Moto three all the way to Moto GP, and we pay for everything. Wow. Okay. All right. Now, I tell you, if 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 we open this up to the rest of the world, okay, millions of people will want kids will want to participate in this purely because of. Ability, the potential, opportunity to be in this system, to be where, to grow into the system. Whereby Malaysian kids, unfortunately, at a certain age, they're looking of okay, I want to be in here, but how much how much salary do I get every month? Hmm. You know, so so that that is the problem. It sounds you know, like that's the. It sounds like you're trying to instill that attitude in them of focus on the winning and the accolades come with that, rather than try and get the accolades as well as the winning. Exactly correct. Yeah, so that's why for us the 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 mission is to start when they're young. You know, we want to identify talent as as early as possible, as early as is legally possible. You know, that between seven uh, uh, to thirteen years old years old on the on the mini GP bikes, identify them and work with the parents. And you know, it's a long term, at least ten year program, all the way up to MotoGP. That's interesting because I always think as well when if some rider signs a contract in MotoGP for some huge amount of money, and a lot of people will be like, "Oh well, he's just taking the money." Oh well, this. I think sometimes I would say it's not even possible almost to ride in MotoGP at that level and be a top rider if that's truly your main motivation. You have to love the sport and want to win. I would argue much more than you want whatever money you are offered somewhere. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, it's, I mean, it's kind it, of true um, all the way up. 
so sometimes we are a, a victim of our own success as well. I think we spoil the kids by by providing too much, you know. But but not forgetting. Uh, um, well, at the same time, the the demographics of kids uh, who are struggling to go into into motorsport, even for two wheels, is basically the same everywhere, you know. In the past, we had this self-pity that, ah, Malaysian boys, you know, young boys, their parents got no money, blah, 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 this and that. But when we we have our European riders, if you hear the stories of Fabio, Frankie, even John McPhee, they went through the same thing. The sacrifice made by their parents to make sure they get money, to travel in cars, sleep in the car, it's the same everywhere. So I told the, the Malaysian parents uh, here, look, you guys are not special. You're not the only one that is suffering. Other kids, Europeans, are the same as well. It's just the level of motivation, the level of sacrifice, the focus, the commitment is where the difference are. Yeah. You know? But the rest is the same. So you don't, you know, don't think that you guys are special. We are different. Everybody's the same. That's really interesting. That's interesting. So like you're kind of opportunities that you can offer kind of level the playing field and then yeah. everyone is it's just about your own motivation and sacrifice exactly that's interesting yeah in fact no in fact the, the malaysian kids have have it better like i said you know you cannot get this kind of program in spain who is willing to pay uh, uh, a kid from nine years old from a, a mini gp all the way up uh, um uh, to to whatever they they, they go if they do well you yeah. know, no, no one. But, but we have that. Actually, you know? <laughs> that's brilliant. You know, uh... <laughs> so, so it's something that then I want to, I want to kind of, we do have a, a quick fire question round for you, by the way, before we finish. But before we do that, oh, I want to just uh, ask, it's, 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 it's nothing serious, don't worry. Um, but before that, I guess something that all the listeners will be wondering about then is, do you have a kind of timeline, anticipated timeline of when you take a kid from Malaysia, you pick a kid out and they join the program. Do you have like a set timeline of what you see progression? What age can they realistically get to MotoGP? Do you have sort of overall targets for them year upon year? What What's that sort of like? Well, the benchmark uh, for me at the moment is what we've seen with European kids. You know, um, uh, the moment they get into the Moto3 World Championship, they are around 16, 16 years old. As long as, as, as soon as they are legal, uh, uh, 16, I believe, or 15, uh, uh, they are in MotoGP. Uh, Moto3 World Championship. So I think that's the benchmark. You know, we got Fabio in the MotoGP when he was 19. Hmm. Okay, he's an exception. It's but crazy. <laughs> so, so we we are looking more into the age. Uh, of course, I'm a man in a hurry because we are working very close together with uh, Serpang Circuit because to me, we need to ensure a continuous participation of Malaysians every year in Malaysian Grand Prix or in the World Championship because we still feel that... <clears throat> Having Malaysians in the World Championship, especially when they race in Malaysia, will continuously help Malaysian MotoGP be successful. So I'm at the same time I'm in a man I'm a man in a hurry as well. I need to make sure that the kids are, are good enough, and the moment they're good enough, they can come into our uh, Moto3 and Moto2. But in the long term uh, uh, development, we want kids to be in Moto3 at least 16 years old in Moto3. So that would mean by 12 to 14, 15, they should be in a CV, either in a European Talent Cup or, or, or the Moto3 CV. Okay. 
Fascinating. That's uh, that's really cool. This has been utterly fascinating. I think this title of this podcast could be something like how to how to build a merge GP rider from scratch because I think you've you've answered all the questions. Um, and, and I and I, I'm really fascinated by that project. I can't wait to see it bear the fruits that you want it to in in the future. Should we um yeah, do we the hope. Kenwood quickfire then, Fran? Yes. Yeah, so this is a segment. Don't worry. Everyone gets so worried like it's a quiz. It's not a quiz. <laughs> Um, it's just a few little shorter questions where you don't need to, you know, just little instinctual answers. So it's sponsored by our partner, Kenwood, who also give us all our walkie talkies and MotoGP. Uh, and they're also a sponsor for the podcast now this year. So we'll start with an easy one, which we've kind of started with a lot recently. So the first one is coffee or tea? Coffee. Do you Good prefer choice. running or cycling? Wow. <laughs> okay, cycling. <laughs> well, you could tell that from your background behind you. That just for the listeners, <laughs> there are about five bikes behind him in this room. <laughs> yeah. Cycling. Um, what's the best moment from your time as Sapang CEO? Zulfami, uh, 2012, second in Malaysian Grand Prix. So close. And and so yeah. and so quick as well. Uh, what's your favourite <laughs> film? Oh, jeez. John Wick, I guess. Really? <laughs> check, check, check him out of the blue. It's John Wick. I can only think John Wick. One, two, three. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, what about a childhood hero or inspiration? Oh, my God. Okay, you, you're going to say that this is just uh, because we're talking to this person, okay, but it's not. Okay. <laughs> it's Valentino. There we go. <laughs> yeah. Okay, and and we had a video conference with him yesterday. So when the moment you ask him, the first thing I could think of is Valentino. Yeah. <laughs> well, I tell you what, that, that sounds like I a like scoop that. Uh, that we've uh, just copped there, isn't it? We we were told <laughs> yeah. we we weren't going to ask you about Valentino, and we're not going to. But I think that's said enough. <laughs> um, <laughs> next next question. Then, what's your favourite moment with the Sepang Racing Team so far? Our first podium, Barcelona, I think. Yeah, Barcelona last year. Nice. Oh, that was amazing. And I guess I the worst moment maybe was Hareth, right? No, 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 no. no. The worst yeah. moment was uh, Malaysian Grand Prix. We were oh, of course, third. yeah. Yeah, that, that oh, brought yeah. us down to earth, heavily down to earth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. Well, I mean, everyone else doesn't remember that anymore. We just remember the glory. So next year it'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm still mentally scared. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, the Beatles or the Rolling Stones? Beatles. What's a Malaysian food or drink that every first-time visitor has to try? Nasi lemak and teh tari. Okay, can we? Can we Nasi lama is basically coconut rice mm. with a with uh, yeah. type dishes. Oh, beautiful! You guys should try it. And tetari is basically condensed tea with milk. Oh, I love that. And and they pulled it. Okay, so when they serve it, there's a lot of bubbles on top. Oh, mm. beautiful! Sounds beautiful. nice. Oh. <laughs> I want it now. <laughs> Same. Um, so what's the most important thing that you've learned working in MotoGP? Trust. 
Nice. You're very quick at answering these questions. This is a much quicker quick fire than we're used to. Um, you get a week holiday anywhere in the world and you're not allowed to turn your phone or access to email or to be connected to work at all. Where do you choose to go? I'll go to the Alps and ride my bike. Cool. Yeah, great shout. Uh, what about your favourite track that isn't Sepang and why? Red Bull Ring. Okay, so the why is just because it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, I, I ran there for the first time last year a couple of times, and it's just gorgeous. It's beautiful. And I had my sons with me, so we went on a scooter, we went out, and, and it's really, really nice. Yeah, um, i got to say, boring. two weeks in Austria is not a bad thing. <laughs> not bad. Yeah. yeah, no, I'm excited <laughs> for that one. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so last one then. What is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Honesty. You have to be honest. Um, I, I think I think that is a pillar of everything. You know, as long as you're honest, be transparent, I think uh, you should be able to do well in life. Great. Yes. Lovely. Nice. I think that's good advice for listeners and viewers yeah. as well. Yeah, quite. Well, Perfect. that's it. That's the Kenwood Quickfire. And uh, and and that's, well, the end of the podcast, I suppose. So thank you very much for your time. I really... Oh, thank you, Matt and friend. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you again to Razlan for his time. And I hope you guys all enjoyed that slight indication of what we might see in terms of grid movements in 2021. Ooh. Ooh. Just watch. By the time that this is edited and put out, It'll be like Live. everyone knows. Yeah, and... but then we can say. But then we can say at that point, like we knew. Huh, we you recorded it on whatever today is. Today I'm is not sure Tuesday, any... the sixteenth of June. So there it is for the record. Um, for, <laughs> for, uh, of course, we give you what you should go and uh, search on the interweb this week. Next week's guest is a very, very special guest as well. Quite a high-profile person to talk about a range of topics, but won't spoil it. We have to wait and see for that one. But Fran, what should be people after this be going to look up on the interweb surfy nut now? <laughs> well, it's a little bit less high profile than Daz O'Connor this week. Yeah. Uh, but no, there's a couple of racing things this week. One of them is the 2012 Moto 3 race at Sepang that we mentioned uh, a couple of uh, brief times, and that amazing finish with Farmy just missing out on that win. Um, and the other one was, um, was it Catalonia last year? Yes, where they said, got the first podium. Exactly, where uh, Fabio Quattararo and Sepang Racing Team, Petronas Yamaha SRT, the full name GP part, uh, got their first Premier Class podium. Pretty amazing. And also, if you want to just remember the pure heartbreak, I think for everyone who wished him all the success in the world, that moment at Hareth as well. Yeah. So close. But uh, talking of Hareth, though, hopefully we'll be back there very shortly. Well, we yes, all, all set at the moment. The calendar, of course, been released. Uh, so yes, hopefully. I thought you said Canada has been released. That <laughs> yeah. was like shamed <laughs> down. Those poor Canadians. No, the, the calendar is out. Obviously, we're, we're not doing a big feature on it because you, you, if you've missed it, you've been living under a rock, and nobody's probably listening now anyway. So yeah, me and Fan will be in Hareth doing more podcasts. Uh, and so, well, without further ado, I guess see you next Monday. Ciao, ciao. Yeah.